Welcome to BSing with Sean K. I'm your host, Sean Neese. And today my guest is uh, Mike Hickey. He is uh, also known as Indigo Speaker on YouTube. So thanks for joining us. Hello, everybody. Thank you for having me on, Sean. Yeah, uh, no problem. So uh, I guess just real quickly introduce yourself, uh, talk about uh, what you do with your videos and what you talk about in them and everything. Okay, so... uh... I'm Mike. I go by Indigo Speaker, and for the last, say, two years now, I've had a YouTube channel, just Indigo Speaker, and I present videos on, uh, largely, at least lately, on uh, Western Hermetic Magic and the Western Magical Tradition. Uh, you know, earlier on, it was a little more of a mixed bag, and I definitely have some videos on, like, Wicca, but also meditation, out-of-body experiences, and astral projection, uh, different meditative methodologies, history of different spiritual traditions, all that kind of stuff. And then, uh, yeah, recently uh, got in on a collaborative website called Integrative Mysticism where I'm putting up some articles and all that good stuff. So uh, I guess what got you interested in all this stuff and uh, what was its initial appeal to you? Well, you know, the initial appeal goes back to when I was pretty young. I had... Uh, a lot of odd experiences starting when I was probably five or six years old, but I uh, grew up in a very Christian, well, I won't say it's a classical Christian household, but my mother was a little bit of a born again and uh, tried to scare me away from anything other than, uh, you know, prayer and being afraid of hell. So it wasn't until uh, early teenage years that I really started exploring out a lot more and uh, say probably... Around sophomore year of high school, I found a book called Modern Magic, which uh, lays out, you know, I mean, it has a mixed reputation, but to find a book like that at 16 years old was pretty incredible. And uh, I just really delved into it, you know. Um, throughout my school years, read a few hundred different books. I've, I've been very fortunate growing up uh, in the Pacific Northwest because there are a lot of... Uh, different new age and metaphysical shops, occult shops. So I was able to find a lot of different classes and find some groups at a pretty young age. And, uh, it really just became my lifestyle and kind of the center of my life. And, uh, I guess for people who might not be as familiar with, uh, I guess the stuff you're interested in, what would you say, like, how would you break down, I guess, like the basics of, uh, hermeticism and magic and, uh, the other things you talk about? <coughs> All right. Well, there, I mean, there are so many different ways that that could be approached. Um, as far as the word magic, I mean, some people, kind of a classic definition is that it's the uh, art of causing changes to occur in conformity with your will. But that's kind of a limited definition. Um, really, it's something that has been in human culture and in human history since before it was written down. Um you know, I found a really good book a few years ago. It's called uh, God's Demons and Symbols of Ancient Mesopotamia and uh, breaks down a lot of uh, translations of tablets from like the Hammurabi library, uh, I'm sorry, the Nag Hammadi library and other uh, Mesopotamian cuneiform clay tablets. And a lot of the instructions that they have for their various priesthoods are very, very, very similar to what we get in medieval grimoires or uh, magic books. And uh, the whole hermeticism thing, the the roots of that, the, the mythology is that it comes from Hermes Trismegistus, who is supposed to be a uh, 
Egyptian prophet or a sage from the third millennium BC. He probably didn't exist, but the literature that's attributed to him all came about between the first and third centuries AD. So uh, the Library of Alexandria, they had scholars from all over the classical world, from as far east as India, but also, of course, Grecians and Romans and Egyptians and Jews and a lot of different people. And so the Corpus Hermeticum is like a 17-volume set of books that were one some of the few to survive when Alexandria was burned. And these uh, influenced a lot of Arabic philosophy early on. Uh, Sufis were highly influenced by Hermeticism. Um, and then in the 9th century AD, more or less, that started coming into Europe. And it met with a very fertile, pre-existing kind of milieu of indigenous practices. You know, um, there was whatever was left over of Celtic and Germanic paganism, um, and that was being influenced by Jewish mysticism and certain heretical Christian ideas. And it all really, like, there, there are a lot of different underground movements that have been going on throughout our history, but a lot of it really started to come together in uh, Florence in the 14th century. There was uh, kind of this massive intellectual blossoming in Florence. And over the course of uh, about 40 years, uh, a whole lot of traditions came together. Uh, Kabbalah, astrology, alchemy, and various magical practices, Hermeticism and Gnosticism. And there was this huge blending that occurred before the Vatican got together with the King of France to eliminate the city-state of Florence and burn some people at the stake. But ever since then, that's kind of when the, the seeds of what we call the Western magical tradition today kind of spread throughout Europe. And then late 1800s, uh, of course, Freemasonry had a huge influence on it. But late 1800s, we see the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn in Britain. And that brought together a lot of different streams of knowledge and uh a lot of what's considered magic and occultism today can draw its roots from the Golden Dawn and from other kind of uh, thinkers in the British underground at that time. Um, Aleister Crowley, McGregor Mathers, uh, it's a little bit arguable, but there's pretty strong evidence that Gerald Gardner, who founded Modern Wicca, was pretty strongly influenced by some of the Golden Dawn stuff. Um, the Theosophy of uh, Helena Petrovna Blavatsky, uh, where we get a lot of our ideas of seven rays and seven masters and ascended masters, and uh, a lot of these kind of hybridized Eastern teachings in a Western way. All of this stuff kind of came together toward the end of the 18th century, or I'm sorry, the end of the 19th, beginning of the 20th century, and really gave birth to a lot of the New Age movement that we have today. So, yeah. So would you say, like, it's lost its original meaning in any ways uh, from being around so long, I guess? In a way, I mean, it's certainly changed with each generation. Uh, I think we have a pretty uniquely privileged stance today in that when we look at what was going on in 1900, plus or minus a decade, you have a very small number of people with access to a very small number of old manuscripts and... Basically, what they translated and what they wrote was what was available, and it wasn't even widely available. But uh, 
end of the 20th century and now in the 2000s, we're seeing a massive resurgence. Uh, we're seeing a lot more well-credentialed scholars who are digging up ancient books and translating them into English. We're seeing a huge number of different groups and lodges and covens that have uh, been growing over the last 30, 40, 50 years, starting to publish and starting to open their doors a lot more. So it is different. It is very different. But a lot of the old roots are becoming a lot easier to find. Um, yeah. And uh, what ways has it been useful, I guess, in your everyday life? Uh, well, for me, it's been incredibly useful. Um, I would say that when it really started to define my life was when I was, you know, I guess between 18 and 21 or 22, um, you know, my kind of first entrance into the adult world. And philosophically, it's been kind of a bedrock. You know, those are, I think, challenging years for most people. Um, you find the party, you find out that adults aren't all the uh, carbon copies of responsibility that you might have imagined would be as a child. And it really served as a bedrock in that regard. Um, but it's also served, I guess, what you would call the purpose of spiritual illumination. And there are pragmatic applications to it as far as uh, when you come to understand what you are trying to do with your life and the whole concept of finding purpose and defining purpose. Uh, magic has a lot of tools to help you express that both to help you discover it and refine it, but also to express it, to get the resources you need and make the connections you need to make and find the meaning that you're trying to find, you know? And, like, uh, how would you say, like, magic works? And maybe do most do most people have a wrong idea of, like, what it exactly is and everything? Or? I have a hard time telling you what most people think. <laughs> to be perfectly <laughs> honest, I'm probably a little... Far out, far out there for uh, some people, but um, if I had to boil it down, I would say that magic is predicated on the idea that all things are connected inherently, and that our physical reality, as very real and solid as it is, is not the fundamental reality, and that human consciousness, uh, kind of the root of our being, I guess you could call it soul if you want to, is something that exists before your physical body exists, it exists after your physical body dies, and even though our bodies and our material lives kind of drink up our consciousness, it takes a lot of our spiritual energy to be human. When we start pulling away from that, when we start looking back to the source of what we are, when we start looking back to the source of what nature is, and looking at this deep interconnectedness. I mean, it's a science you can devote your entire life to, but it's that interconnectedness that's the root of all of it. And learning how to use that to kind of tweak the strings that connect things, to play with probability, to play with perception, to play with reality itself, kind of the underpinnings of it is what it's all about, you know? Science so would you say magic's kind of similar to when people talk about creating a more positive uh, reality with your thinking? Or? Uh, in a way, I'd say thinking is part of it. Um, 
You know, and I know the whole law of attraction thing has gotten very popular lately. Um, I remember when The Secret first came out, and it was kind of like, whoa, that's an interesting video. Um, but I feel like there's a lot missing from that, too. Um, like their whole, uh, I'll, I'll pick on The Secret because it's an easy target that's been out there for a long time. Uh, they talk about the law of attraction, and they say it comes from the Emerald Tablet of Hermes, which it does. And it's one line out of, you know, like a, what, 15, 15 little quotes, and they present one of them as the way to attract whatever you want into your life. But that's not really what the whole document means. Um, if you read the whole thing, it has a lot to do with spiritual illumination. It has instructions for achieving controlled out-of-body experiences and for unifying yourself with your higher power or what you might call God for, you know, there's a lot involved in it. And, uh, I feel like the idea that your whole goal in spirituality is to become this little demigod dictating reality around you is a little imbalanced. Like, yes, there's so is it a little too selfish is what you're saying. Maybe, or maybe, yeah, maybe a little too selfish should be a word for it. I think it's just imbalanced because, there's, you know, we do have the ability to exude our influence outward, but we also have to be receptive and remember that the people outside of ourselves are just as real as we are, you know? Every individual kind of likes to think that they're the prettiest one, they're the smartest one, they're the special one. We're all the special one, and so is the person standing next to you. And the the whole focus on just the mind you know you also have a heart you have emotions you have feelings you have intuition you have a body and there's nature and the earth and the stars and the sky you know so that that fixation on thought and positive thinking i feel like is part of it but it's not the complete package it it's, needs to be more like of an empathetic thing is what you're saying like, yeah yeah it needs to be more well-rounded you know it's I feel like just focusing on positive thinking to the exclusion of all else is like if you were working out and you just do curls because you want to get a huge bicep and you get this one bicep that's massive compared to the rest of your body and the rest of you is withered away and atrophied and you're kind of like now cocked all out of balance because of it. You know, the, the, the mind discipline is important as a part of an overall kind of balanced approach to life and a balanced approach to spirituality. That takes care of yourself, but acknowledges the, the importance of taking care of other others as well. You know, that acknowledges the importance of your mind, but also your emotions and your physical health and the health of your relationships with other people. All of it, you know, it needs to be much more holistic, I guess would be a good word for it. And I guess if you just, like, look at the positive, like, you can't just look away from negative things in the world and expect them to just go away absolutely not. Yeah. you know and that's another thing that i have had difficulty with with a lot of law of attraction based teachings and a lot of different new age teachings all around is that there's this idea that i guess can be comforting under certain circumstances but they say you know everything happens for a reason your soul chose your life path if you're facing challenges those challenges are something you need to experience and i guess in a certain context sure but a little kid getting kidnapped and raped and tortured in Syria, that's not their spiritual will for that to happen. And if we just look away and ignore it and say, I'm the center of my universe, not my problem, that must be the life lesson they need to learn, that's monstrous. That is, that's condoning evil. 
you know? We, we are participating in a reality that we're co-creating. And just like other people influence you and you influence them, sometimes people who are in terrible circumstances did not bring it on themselves, you know? And if we are truly connected, then we're going to care about that person the same care about ourselves and our immediate loved ones. You know, it needs to be balanced and connected. And, uh, yeah, and I guess it's a, I guess it's a balance. Like it's okay to have some, uh, a little bit of, you know, just wanting your own goals and stuff. And then also like some selflessness as well, I guess, too. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I don't think there's any, uh, virtue in starving yourself or living in poverty if you don't have to. Um, you know, I make money. I own a computer. I live in a house, not trying to, uh, you know, go live on the streets to prove a point. Um, and I, I feel like there are a lot of things in life that are just a lot easier if you have food and water and things that you need, maybe even some indulgence, some fun, some, uh, you know, taking what you need out of life and what you want out of life just not getting so fixated on it that you don't care how you get it, you know? Um, I feel like... I mean, it guilts me a little bit to even wear clothes that I'm pretty sure were made by slaves. I can't afford much better than that. But, uh, you know, there's a point of saying, okay, I'm going to take what I need and some of what I want to a point where I'm happy enough to uh, be satisfied with my life but not get fixated on greed to the point where you don't care who might suffer to give you what you're looking for, you know? And that's a big problem. Uh, I feel like that's a big problem with our upper middle class and definitely with our upper class. And a lot of people really just envy it. You know, they envy the people who don't work. They envy the people who don't contribute anything. They envy the people who are living all day, every day off of the sweat and labor of other people. And they really, really, really want to be that. And it's like, man, I'm not saying every person who has a retirement account is personally guilty. I'm not saying that at all. But if what you're taking from life radically exceeds what you give to life, then there's someone else who's giving a hell of a lot more than what they're receiving. There's an imbalance. And that imbalance is what creates sweatshops full of children starving to death while they work 16 hour days that imbalance creates you know an entire class or multiple classes of people even in wealthy countries like the united states who work full-time sometimes more than full-time and that's just enough to pay for somebody else's house and some food to eat you know the existence of an upper class is kind of predicated on the existence of a servant class. And I, I'm not saying that uh, we can change that overnight, and I'm not saying that starving yourself and living in poverty is the right answer to that, but at least recognizing that that's what's going on and keeping your eyes open and keeping your mind open for even small instances where you can do something to correct it, to correct the imbalance, 
you know, if six billion people were thinking about correcting the imbalance instead of thinking about how to get everything for themselves, <laughs> a lot of our problems would just disappear. Yeah. And I, and I guess, like, what you were saying before is sometimes people with the law of attraction, they seem to even forget about those kinds of things, like what could be what can go wrong with greed and everything. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, uh, and there that whole, like, I am the center of the universe, it can be a very potent thought for certain kinds of meditation. You know, uh, there was a while there where I really got into the kind of pseudo-quantum physics and the whole... Uh, you know, everything in my reality I've manifested, and meditations from that led to some really interesting paranormal experiences. Um, and there are still times where I'll use that to induce certain kinds of meditative states, but I guess kind of my understanding of it is even if you go with that idea that maybe you're manifesting the immediate physical objects around you, that there's some kind of... Uh, mechanism at work underneath the surface i'm not sure that's really how it works but just say you're going with that the other people are still real it's like think about world of warcraft okay each one of you when you're playing world of warcraft i'm not a big gamer but it's a, it's an easy metaphor each one of you is looking at your own little computer screen each one of you in your little world of warcraft each tree on that screen each character on that screen is all pixels on your screen Everything you're seeing is on your screen. And yet, when you interact with that little character on your screen, you're also affecting another living human being. When you're interacting with other people that you meet in your day-to-day -day life, you're influencing another soul. You know? And yeah, I mean, I, I get where... Using the law of attraction, using positive thinking to benefit yourself, I'm not faulting it completely, you know. I think it's an important part of who and what we are. But I think a lot of the way that it's marketed and the way that it's sold is preying on the worst parts of our indoctrination. Uh, kind of the cult of greed. The idea that someone who's a spiritual teacher, well, how do you know that they know what's going on? Well, look at my $5 million house and my giant fucking boat. Obviously, I know what's going on. Or you're just part of the upper class, dude. You know? That's that's it right there. The, the fact that you manifested yourself a mansion, did you really manifest it? Or did you invest a lot of money in some various business endeavors and work really hard to get those business endeavors to pay off? Yeah, why couldn't that child who got kidnapped and raped that you were talking about earlier manifest his own house? <laughs> yeah, yeah, no kidding. And I'm, I'm guessing a lot of those kids couldn't even have imagined the things that happened to them in order to manifest them. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I really doubt that lots of little toddlers are thinking about, wouldn't it be great if someone ripped me out of my mother's arms and killed me? They're, they're not imagining that. They are not manifesting that. So... Obviously, there's a flaw to the logic. There's a flaw in the teaching. And, uh, you know, it really does prey on greed. And it preys on people who feel powerless. It preys on people who have self-esteem issues. It preys on people who have had it indoctrinated into them so much that the goal of life is to become a millionaire. And that they haven't attained that just creates this crippling insecurity inside them. 
And then an unethical kind of pseudo-spiritual teacher can come along and tell them, well, I've got the secret to where you can finally be the real person who made the millions, and you can finally be a success, and you just need to believe what I say and buy my book and take my seminar and every time it doesn't work. Well, that's because you didn't have enough faith, or let me make up some more BS laws to go with this, you know? I remember... Gosh, about a year after The Secret came out, maybe a year and a half, around the time people were figuring out, crap, this doesn't work all the time, uh, they came out with, oh, here are four more spiritual laws. You know, here are 12 spiritual laws. And, uh, you know, the first one was drawn from a nice hermetic source, and then the rest are just kind of like someone made them up. And I actually watched a guy bankrupt a multi-million dollar business that at the time had something like 40 employees and maybe six subcontractors dependent on him uh, within about a year and a half of deciding that he believed in the secret. Uh, he had been running this company for 30 years, taking it from him and his son working up to this, you know, kind of edifice of, you know, economic stability that a lot of us were involved in and completely relied on because it was a great company to work for. And he started you know, getting into the secret, and uh, I remember he uh, actually started preaching the secret at us at one of our company meetings, like three months before the whole thing went bankrupt, and all of a sudden we didn't have jobs, you know, so I listened to a guy like, uh, I, I think it's probably poor taste to pick on someone who is no longer living, but it's an important example of it, uh, Abraham Hicks used to like to go around telling everybody that he was a billionaire. And that if you followed his teachings, you could become a billionaire, too. And he would kind of orate about, you know, his feeling of just salivating with greed over all the things that he wanted. And it was kind of disgusting if you could step back and listen to it. But by the time you've bought into the whole ad campaign that he is the alpha male that you want to be, and he knows the secret knowledge that you don't know, so just listen to him, you can become very vulnerable to just drinking that in uncritically and... Point blank, he's not a billionaire. He never was. He was never anywhere close. It was a lie. Hmm. And he tried to justify it when he got called out on it. Well, I'm just speaking as if I've already accomplished what I want to be. But it's like, you're telling people that you came from nothing and you used the law of attraction to make yourself a billionaire. And you're a middle-class guy who invested his money to make a couple million. And you're lying to people to keep selling your books. And, oh, cool, Oprah put her stamp of approval on you. I guess she's pretty good at marketing, too. <laughs> Doesn't mean she has your best interests at heart. So you just wanted to become a billionaire through lying to people about being one, I guess. <laughs> yeah, or maybe he deluded himself. Maybe he, uh, maybe he bought into his own bullshit. But one way or another, people heard a bunch of claims which were not true that preyed on their insecurities and they jumped into it head first. And some of them probably do okay with it, and some of them ruin their lives on it because it's not a balanced philosophy. It's not a complete approach to life. And that's, uh, I guess that's why people gotta stop looking to these gurus for all the answers and maybe, you know, that maybe they have some of the answers for themselves, I guess. Indeed. You know, I mean, I've read a lot of books by different gurus. I've taken classes from people. Um, you know, I've met a few monks who were really cool. And uh, even people who had stuff I didn't agree with, I was able to learn from them. But 
Yeah, you have to remember that anyone who is telling you that they have everything you need, that they are the light in the way that you've been seeking, is probably trying to control you and probably trying to get something out of you. And if you are going to learn from someone, treat it more like you're going to the community college and learning about a subject, okay? The, the person teaching math at the community college or teaching an English class, they're not trying to solve your life. They're just giving you something they know about. So rather than looking for gurus, look for information. Read a book. Have your own thought. Trust yourself more than you trust anybody else. And if someone says something that makes you doubt yourself, cool. Ask yourself those questions and come to your own answer. And I feel like uh, like a lot of the early uh, spiritual teachings and everything, uh, ironically, was a bit more about kind of getting away from materialism and that, you know, that's not what the real success is. The real success, success is uh, within and, you know, how you feel and being at peace with yourself and everything around you. And now it's kind of, they turned it more into just as, just achieving, you know, like a material success instead. Indeed. I mean, if we look at primitive, like, uh, almost what I would call more natural religions, there's a balance between, like, okay, if you look at most tribal religions, they have beliefs about how to make sure that you always have food to eat. They have beliefs about how to keep your tribe healthy, you know, sometimes even about how to affect the weather, how to prevent misfortune. But it's not rooted in this all-consuming greed. It's more in harmony with nature. It's we're animals and we need to survive and we desire comfort, but that's just one tiny piece of the picture. Um, you know, and most of the religions that we understand started as mm, kind of maybe not outright government operations, but at some point in time they became government operations. You know, um, when we look at even some of the late pagan mythologies, why is it that the most important gods are the king, the warrior, and the lawgiver? Oh, because those are the people that are in charge of you. The king, the warrior, and the judge. Those people are in charge of you. So your religion tells you that those are the most important ones in the sky, too. That all the other gods bow down to. You know, and there can be a self-serving element to it from the perspective of being the wealthy king who basically owns the scribes. Like, you guys better write some things down that are going to contribute to the social order. You know, when we look at Christianity, um, the, the, the Bible, as we understand it, was compiled under the auspices of Emperor Constantine, who prior to his conversion was most famous for murdering his own children because he was afraid that they would usurp his throne. But he murdered them when they were like little tiny kids who were nowhere near to trying to take the throne. And he converted for whatever reasons, but then he decided, okay, well, they're all, all kind of, Christianity means all kinds of different things. At that time, there were some 1,700 different bishops with their own ministries and the only ones that got invited to the council where they decided what official Christianity is going to be were the wealthy Roman ones. All the Egyptians and Jews not invited. And, you know, a dozen plus books, all supposedly written by disciples, one supposedly written by Jesus himself. Um, you know, the, the 
Council of Nicaea sat down in 325 AD and they decided what the Bible is. And they included Paul, who wasn't even one of the disciples. He In the mythology, he met Jesus for like five minutes and just decided he knew what it was all about. And somehow, this long-haired hippie who believed he was the king of Israel, who was going to free the Jewish people, all of a sudden is telling people to pay their taxes. And instead of telling people that... Here's how you work the miracles. Here's how you heal one another. Here's how you speak to God. He was saying, ask me for forgiveness. You know, and that's not what all of the early Testament said. And who knows what it could have turned into a million different ways. But I find it very significant that when an emperor converted and ordered the rest of his empire to convert and gathered together a bunch of wealthy clerics to decide what the book was that everybody gets to read, it conveniently tells you to pay your taxes, you know? But, and it's not just Christianity, you know, the, the Old Testament. It's compiled from a bunch of different sources. It's not one book. It never was. Uh, you can even see reflections of different pre-Judaic pagan tribal religions that got brought together. And the way it got brought together supported a monarchy. It supported a nation and a kingship. Um, you know, and we just see this throughout large religions, right and left, to the dawn of time. And I think where we find a more authentic spirituality is when we look for what have the people who were not trying to rule anyone had to say. The people who were not the king, they did not work for the king. And they devoted their lives to seeking truth. What did they have to say? What did they figure out as individuals? What did their, when communities came together that were not trying to conquer anybody, what did those communities believe? The ones who were trying to live in peace and harmony, what did those people think? What did they figure out? And, uh, you know, it's out there to be found. It really is. So you feel like more the way that organized religion has been manipulated is harmful more than you're saying organized religion itself? Yeah, I mean, it depends on how it's organized. Um, I've always found it very, uh, and I think definitely in our modern world, most organized religion has a very uh, imperial structure. And I think it's that imperial structure that's the problem. Um, you know, if you look at how a lot of uh, more tribal groups operate, there is still like some level of hierarchy as far as, yeah, we gather together and uh, yeah, the old people over there, they're kind of in charge, but they're old. So the one who's actually leading everything is probably in their 30s or 40s. And there's some kind of hierarchy going on as far as some people know more than others. And there's a certain leadership element, but it's more on a family level. And there is not as much of a uh, dictatorial authority over what you do in your life, you know? It's more guidance and opinions and people acknowledging that they have opinions and sometimes opinions differ. So you think maybe uh, society needs to move more towards uh, forms of spirituality that are, I guess, less, have a less of an imperial kind of structure or whatever? Yeah. Yeah, where your spirituality is something that's 
yours as an individual, and something that you share with people that you love and trust. As simple as that. You know, you don't necessarily need a grand poobah to tell you that you believe. And if you share, if you have a uh, spiritual experience alone by yourself, or whether you share it with other people who you know, whether you've met them today or whether you've known them your whole life or whatever, there's your religious community. There's your spiritual community. You've just shared an experience with real human beings. So, and, uh, I guess, was it hard, like, because you said you were raised uh, Christian, uh, so was it hard breaking away from that and moving into uh, more of the stuff you practice now? Or? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, absolutely. It was, I think, uh, I find I, I remember writing in like my diary when I was uh, maybe 13 that I finally decided I wasn't Christian because I kind of had a point of illumination. But, uh, you know, weeding out a lot of the negative elements of it has been incredibly difficult. And it's an ongoing process even now. Um, you know, uh, I mean, my practice today still does involve a lot of Judeo-Christian elements um, as far as the Kabbalah is heavily influenced by Jewish thinking. Um, but yeah, when I was young, I was always looking for a leader, a group, a hierarchy, and I found plenty of them, and some of them were pretty cool, and some of them really sucked. Um, but figuring out how to balance like my rebellion against imperial authority with the simple acknowledgement of the fact that other people are going to be wiser and more knowledgeable than me, figuring out how to balance that to where I could interact with society without losing my own autonomy. It's a tough balance to strike and figuring out natural ethics when you're coming from a position of getting your whole concept of morality from a book written by people who didn't know what soap was, you know, those, those early childhood teachings sneak up on you and they come out at surprising times. And they make it difficult to even figure out what real morality is. So it's definitely, it's, it's an ongoing challenge. I feel like I've come pretty far with it, but uh, even at 31 years old, there are still times when I look at my own beliefs and think, okay, there are some things I haven't gotten right yet. There are some things I don't understand yet. Maybe there are some leftovers from old indoctrination that are still affecting me a little bit. It's always a work in progress. And uh, has, like, uh, your family and other people you knew that were Christian when you were a Christian, have they become more accepting of, uh, like, you practicing Wicca and the other stuff you talk about over the years? Or? Uh, you know, mixed bag, actually. Um, my mother has actually come a long way with it. Um, she still considers herself to be Christian, but she's experimented with other uh, you know, beliefs and philosophies and maybe kind of integrating meditation into her Christianity and so on and so forth. Um, my brother and father, not that religion is just not a big deal to them. I will say that, uh, a fair chunk of my extended family is not cool with me at all. You know, I've got three cousins who I had, ever had contact with as an adult because my aunt believes that I am influenced by the devil and corrupt them, despite the fact that they're now grown-ups. Um, so it's been a mixed bag. It's been a mixed bag. Uh, but the people who are in my life 
the ones who have stuck it through are definitely people worth having in my life. Um, so do you think, like, a lot of people stick with uh, organized religion just because, you know, they've been indoctrinated into it and they don't really fully believe it themselves, maybe? Or? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, you know, a fella that uh, was a delivery guy at my work for maybe half a year before we picked another supplier. Uh, he was a diehard Jehovah's Witness, and I had long talks with him, and uh, really interesting talks. I actually find the Jehovah's Witness uh, approach to Christianity to be a very interesting one. There, There's a little more to it than you might expect. It definitely has a lot of negative qualities, in my opinion. But uh, one of the last times that I talked to him, I remember him saying, you know, I feel like, you know, my eyes have been open to a lot of things, but if I stop being a Jehovah's Witness, I'm going to lose my family. And all I could say to that was, well, you know, family's important, man. Do what you feel is right. And if you're going to be an elder in this very extremely conservative uh, oddball church, maybe you can just encourage... Uh, other members of your congregation to be a little more cool and accepting toward other kinds of people. Maybe that's your work in this world, you know, because for him, yeah, for him to walk away from being a Jehovah's witness means goodbye wife, goodbye children, goodbye parents, goodbye siblings, goodbye everyone and everything. And that that's a tenet of their faith. If uh, you become apostate, every believer has to cut you off completely. It's uh, it's an extremely powerful control mechanism, and it makes it so that even people who are having different thoughts, who are trying to consider life in a different way, can become absolutely terrified of doing it, you know? And I think that contributes to a lot of problems that we see in areas that have issues with pervasive racism, pervasive homophobia, pervasive... Uh, misogyny and abuse of women and abuse of children is that even people who look at it and they're seeing with eyes open like wow this is messed up but they look around them and they see an entire community that supports it and they don't even know how many others in that community might be thinking just like them it could be that a majority in that community would love for it to change radically and yet these laws of control and these these ah very clever and very hideous psychological control mechanisms are very deeply ingrained in a lot of people. And it makes free thinking and it makes personal growth very difficult. And especially when there can be you know, like severe consequences if you do think differently and you do try to do something different, like you were saying. Absolutely, you know. And... To see people, you know, go through that in communities in the United States of America, I can only imagine what it's like in other parts of the world, you know. Um, it can be incredibly challenging. But I also feel that there is an inborn spark of spirituality in humans which can come out even in surprising places, you know. Uh, even in a concrete parking lot, something will find a way to grow there. But, uh, yeah, the, 
the control mechanisms and the fear are awful. And I guess that's part of why, I mean, it took me a while to decide, you know what, screw it. If people hate me for getting on the internet and talking about a bunch of really odd stuff that might be taken the wrong way, let them hate me. I'm, I'm, I guess I'm trying to be available to people who might be in more isolated communities or people in, you know, gray communities who just want to hear some interesting stuff. But uh, I feel like that that missionary zeal that can be very misdirected when it comes to trying to indoctrinate people and get them under control can also be applied to trying to set people free, not to tell them how to think, but to tell them, hey, have you heard the good news? You're free. <laughs> As simple as that. Maybe it's some of its stuff, I guess, that can change uh, as the generations go on and everything. Well, absolutely. I mean, uh, you know, as far as how Christianity can change, I, again, I live in a very, very, very liberal town, but, uh, you know, many sects of Christianity that in other places might preach something totally different, they have no problem marrying gay people here. They have no problem having a woman as the head of the congregation. Um, they're not preaching hellfire. They're not even necessarily preaching that people of other religions or atheists or anybody else are doomed. Uh, I went to, randomly, I stopped in at a, oh gosh, what's the denomination? They're almost Catholic, but not quite. Uh, not Anglican, not Presbyterian. I don't know. They have like a big old castle and holy water and all the normal Eucharist stuff. And I ended up talking to the priest there because for some reason I just wanted someone to talk to. And I remember telling him, like, I'm not Christian at all. I cannot even find it within me to believe the Bible, period. And he was like, that's fine. Do you believe in a higher power that connects us? And I said, yeah. He said, all right. Well, when I say Jesus, interpret that in your own way. Let's talk. And that's something that uh, a Presbyterian minister could not have done a hundred years ago and probably couldn't do today in a lot of places to just say, oh, the fact that you think the Bible is a pile of crap really has nothing to do with our ability to connect to each other on a human level and on a spiritual level. And so, yeah, I'm seeing examples of how Christianity can change. Uh, you know, when you look at Islam, there are huge examples of how a book that's full of violence and has some kind of harsh laws can blossom into amazing spiritual teachings um, in a lot of different ways. I'm not nearly as well versed in Islamic studies as I'm in Judeo-Christian studies, but uh, when you it's look like the at Sufis, uh, yeah, like Sufis, Rumi and, yeah. or Rumi or uh, Khalil Gibran, you know, different writers and you know what is or it? Or even that girl that's been a political activist, uh, Malala. Like it, it's not she doesn't preach about spirituality, but she's been you know, preaching a very positive, peaceful message about how girls should be educated and everything. Indeed, indeed. Yeah. You know, I mean, and you look at the Bible, and there are tons of hideous laws in the Bible, too. I mean, <laughs> lots of old religions have really hideous laws, but I feel that there is an innate desire for people to be connected and an innate desire for people to see each other happy and to see things good. And, yeah, uh, a sociopath might not feel that, and even people who aren't sociopaths might get wrapped up in fear and wrapped up in all kinds of reactive thinking that can blind them to it, and certain religious cults can try to blind them to it intentionally. But I think at our root, people desire good things for each other. 
I think empathy is a natural human quality. So even when things are all screwed up, there are people who are desiring to correct them all over the world in every faction of society. So I guess uh, what would you say your ultimate goal is with your videos? And uh, like, would you one day like to be doing like full-time work that's more related to spirituality and the things you talk about in them? Or? Oh, absolutely. Um, I'm actually starting a pretty involved class series in January, um, put together about a three-year curriculum, so I'm starting with the first three-month phase of it in January, and that's teach classical Western magic and hermeticism. Um, and I, there's a small fee that goes with it. People can talk to me if, they, if it truly provides financial hardship, but I would love nothing more than to spend my days teaching history, teaching hermetic sciences, teaching meditative arts and spiritual arts, and uh, being, I guess, a priest in a way, or filling the role of a priest in a not-so-organized movement. Um, yeah, I'd absolutely love that. Uh, I guess my role in it, I feel like uh, I might be a little much for someone who's just starting to think that maybe the ideas they grew up with weren't all the weren't all correct, but I feel like there are a lot of people who have been on a spiritual journey for a time that uh, are looking for something a little deeper, maybe looking for the equivalent of a community college of spiritual knowledge. So I kind of imagine myself being the uh, the community college teacher of hermeticism and the community college teacher of magic, and let people make what use of it they will. So you think more for like people who've been interested in this stuff for a while rather than people just breaking away from like a more conservative religion? Yeah. I mean, I'll talk to anybody. I'm open to anybody. But uh, I think the people that tend to be more into the stuff that I present have usually kicked around a few different ideas. So, yeah, and that's, uh, you know, with the... the at least this most recent, uh, the, the thing I'm starting up in January, it's gonna, it starts at a beginner level, but it moves along, you know, I, I don't oversimplify things, I figure there are a lot of people out there who are offering a very, very simple approach to spirituality, and many of them are very good at it, so I, I'll aim to be the, uh, the community college level of spirituality, that's my goal, I suppose. And uh, before we wrap up, since uh, this is my last podcast episode of 2015 and we're getting towards the new year and everything, uh, just maybe if you could give some sort of, uh, I guess, spiritual perspective on the new year and where we're headed and everything. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I've always found it interesting the longest night of the year is, uh, you know, obviously there are mythologies about the rebirth of the sun god, but that longest night of the year when you gather around the fireplace, I feel like the hearth and the connection of family and looking at each other's faces and being outside from the cold is a very important part of it. That connection, that animals huddling together inside during the winter, reconnecting with the people that are important to your life is one of the greatest types of magic of our whole solstice holiday, whether it's Christmas or what, what have you. Um, and yeah, new year, the new thing, the longest night of the year. in a lot of, uh, mythologies represents death, uh, in certain forms of British Celtic paganism, uh, the, 
the solstice is when the Holly King, who has presided over the death, he's presided over fall, he's presided over the days getting colder, he's brought death to everything. Uh, the solstice is when he's slain, and the Oak King takes control to bring everything back to life. Cycle of creation and destruction. So we're passing through this holiday season, and we're passing through the coldest time of the year and the darkest time of the year to begin the growth of new things. And uh, I, whatever spiritual practice you may have, if you want to take some time to uh, plant a seed or plant an idea of death being over, of destruction being over, of peace and connectedness growing, I think that would be a great time to do it. And I guess that's why a lot of people think of resolutions and uh, changes they want to make during New Year's. Absolutely. The old cycle of your life is dying. It's completed. It's time to begin anew. And uh, your New Year's resolution can be anything, but resolving that your eyes are going to be more open, that your heart's going to be more open, and that... Rather than making your resolutions all about how can I better fit into whatever box I think I'm supposed to fit into, let your resolution be about living more in harmony with life, experiencing more joy, sharing more joy, letting there be more light in yourself for your own benefit and to share with everybody else. That, I think, is the best resolution you could possibly have. And live it the way uh, it makes sense for you. I couldn't agree more. We're all different beings, and uh, I don't think our species was meant to be ants. Ants are very effective in their uh, level because they're all under the control of the queen, and they operate as a single organism. We're not a single organism. We don't all have to be the same. We don't all have to obey. We don't all have to agree. We don't all have to do the same thing. And life is much, much better when we don't. I guess any final thoughts or things you want to say? Gosh, I don't know. I don't know. I'd just say uh, I appreciate you having me on the podcast. I know I'm probably a little bit of an odd duck, but uh, it's been a pleasure talking to you. And to anyone listening, look in your heart and live in light. Live your own truth. Life is good. And uh, I guess uh, people want to find you on social media or... Uh, yeah, absolutely. On Facebook, I have an Indigo Speaker Facebook page. Uh on YouTube, again, it's Indigo Speaker. Uh, don't do a whole lot of other social media. I should get on board with Twitter and Snapchat, whatever. I'm terrible with computers, by the way. But uh, IndigoSpeaker.com is a great way to get a hold of me with emails. Um, got an email link there. Uh, classes are coming up. I need to uh, update the websites, but you can... Uh, Get an hour of talking to me on Skype for 40 bucks if you want to get my priority attention. You can throw a little money at me. I am susceptible to greed as much as anyone else. Uh, but, yeah, send me an email through indigospeaker.com, and definitely check out integrativemysticism.com, which is where you'll find my articles. Uh, you'll also find Nico of the Scarlet Moon, his articles and services there, and you can, uh, yeah, find lots of good stuff on integrativemysticism.com. All right, well, I think it does, that does it for uh, this episode of uh, BSing with Sean K. Thanks again to uh, Mike, uh, Indigo Speaker, for coming on. Right on. Appreciate it, Sean. It's been a pleasure.
Yeah, man. No problem. And, uh, yeah, I should have more episodes coming in uh, the new year, so uh, stay tuned.